0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would be at work in us. Father, that you would make us like little children, ready to receive our meal. Lord, that you would give us humility of spirit and that we would bow to your word and honor you through our bodies. Father, be with us. Bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the elders have been exhorting us in recent weeks, you remember um, Elder Foltz up here exhorting us to raise our hands in worship, and Renton did the same thing at one of the recent fireside chats, I believe, pushing, uh, pushing the young men in that direction to raise hands in worship, and now I want to give you um, why you really should do that, All right? Because it's written here in the Word of God. And the Word of God is our uh, standard, right? The Word of God is um, where we find uh, the impetus for our obedience to the Lord. And so so we look at this one verse this morning. And so uh, this passage has an explicit application to how we worship God. In particular, we receive a command from God regarding how we approach Him, both in body and spirit. The Holy Spirit commands us to lift holy hands in prayer without wrath and dissension. The passage addresses both the posture of our spirit and the posture of our body, right? We're to raise our hands and we're not to do it with wrath and dissension in the heart. So, Uh, To emphasize one without the other would be to miss the point of the passage. Stepping back for a moment, we see that our passage starts with a therefore, which connects it to what precedes. The Apostle Paul's argument in the preceding uh, verses is the reason for the commands, the charges he is about to give, right? And we get a command to the men about raising hands without wrath and anger, and then we get commands to the women, right? I don't want women to adorn themselves with, with, um, with immodestly and um, indiscreetly. And so the God teaches us in those preceding verses that we are to pray for all men, right? The section is on prayer. Uh, for those in authority so that we might live in a nation where the Christian witness thrives. We pray for the king that we might live in a land where the Christian witness thrives. Such is good because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? To that end, Paul says there is one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The apostle Paul was appointed to preach that gospel. And the context then is one not simply of private worship, but of worldwide Christian witness. Right? That's important. He says, pray for all men, that all men might come to a knowledge of God. And then connects the commands of verses 8 through 15 to that command. Many people want to limit these verses to public corporate worship. Though the context of the passage is wider than that. It has in mind the witness of the Christian in the world, not merely limited to the sanctuary. So looking at our verse and the one the ones ahead, we see that the Holy Spirit gives commands to men, as I said earlier. The Greek is andros, right? It's the plural of oner, which means man, not human generically. He's not using anthropos here. It's specifically to men, males. Um, And then in verses 9 through 15, in the Greek, you have gunaikos, and it's it's women. Uh, Verse 8 is given to men, verse 9 through 15, are given to women. Now, we can't even take such a distinction for granted today, can we? We can't blow by the fact that Scripture addresses the sexes separately and with different commands, right? We have a tendency to approach everything today in an egalitarian or an androgynistic way. Right? because of our culture's hatred of distinctions, especially sex distinctions, we get embarrassed that there would be commands in Scripture that, that don't apply just generically. Right? There are commands in Scripture that are for the women, commands for the men, and they're different. Right? So God has called um, male and female, that fundamental distinction of mankind, good. That difference God built into his creation, and he called it good. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God saw that all he had made was very good, right? And then it's repeated in the New Testament in Mark 10. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And so when Scripture makes this distinction between male and female and gives commands that differ according to the sex, it does so because God made that distinction and said it was good. He's not embarrassed by it. Only we in our culture are embarrassed by it. Our culture, our elites, and our colleges, our politicians, gnash their teeth at what God has called good. And So many now in many states um, They've so hated God's sex distinction that they've passed laws to enshrine this sex anarchy. I mean, we see it in the laws uh, about sports and sporting events. We see the NCAA pushing um, transgender participation in women's sports, which is gonna absolutely destroy women's sports, right? And so, I mean, even even a male body that has uh, estrogen pumped into it is stronger than the female body. Anyway, that's probably offensive to you. Um, men may now go into women's locker rooms, restrooms, changing facilities, etc. Um, simply because they feel like a woman. And, um, and brothers and sisters, this is because fallen man hates God and hates the things that God has made. He ha- they hate the way that he has made this distinction, male and female. We think it is... Um, we might think it is logical that unregenerate people might hate God's Ten Commandments because they restrict their freedom to sin. But today our society is so set against God that we've moved beyond a hatred for His commands to a fundamental hatred of His creation distinctives, right? So pervasive is this hatred of what God has called good that we have a hard time convincing our children of the fact that God had a specific purpose in making them either a boy or a girl. And that has huge implications for the rest of their lives. In fact, it has huge implications in the life to come, (laughs) right? We will be boy and girl, man and woman. They've been, we won't be married, but we'll still be male and female because God made that distinction and it was good. Um, our children have been educated in egalitarianism, which is a principled lack of distinction. And their parents have done it, who were not taught headship and submission by the Word of God. They've been taught by their schools, um, who perhaps other than school uniforms make no distinction between male and female, um, by their entertainment. I mean, think of the gender bending that goes on in the Marvel universe, right? It's only going to get worse from here out. Stay away from it. But there, and, and then the government, right, who has legitimated the marriages of men with men and women with women and by denominational study committees um, who only give worth to masculine callings and then allow women to have those masculine callings, right? Right? Um, ridiculous and then scripture says I want the men and then likewise I want the women right these these distinctions are called out and and okay we can accept the fact that he says to the men lift your hands in prayer but what does he say to the women what does he say to the women here women be um, modestly be modest discreet don't be vain Um, clothe yourself with good works and we're all kind of fine with that right but even the modesty thing is like you know what's modesty I mean you can't really define it can you Um, and and men they're just lechers, and so everything's immodest right and so um, and then and then it gets to a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness and we're like okay rabbi Paul No thanks, checking out on this one. And then it goes on, and I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Did he have to add that last phrase there, right? To remain quiet. And then he ties it all the way back to creation. So there's no way to wiggle out of this for Adam was created first and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived. Remember, it was Eve who sinned first. Eve was deceived by the serpent. And then the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And then after all of that, what does Paul say? I mean, to be quiet is one thing. Woman, be quiet. And then he says, well, she'll be saved through the bearing of children. Oh, brother. Women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint and you know the gymnastics that people use to get around these verses that that this, apply, this was Paul being a rabbi and so it doesn't apply to the new testament church and 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 this was specifically for that culture which was misogynistic culture you know and all these all these hermeneutical gymnastics that are done and and yet we have a doctrine of scripture that doesn't allow that because the doctrine of scripture that we believe is that it is inspired by God and is profitable for training and teaching and correcting and, and, um, and so it applies to all time, in all cultures, everywhere. So, um, all of this doesn't compute to us who have, who have been steeped in an androgynous, egalitarian, feministic culture. Right? And it only makes sense by the Holy Spirit at work in us, sanctifying us, and believing what's written by, by the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so we have been taught by the Word of God to understand the fundamental, creational, glorious differences between the being, the biology, and the calling of men and women. In other words, today there is only godliness, but, but there is not masculine and feminine godliness, right? Even though Scripture continually makes the distinction between a masculine and a feminine godliness. Now, there is a general godliness. There is overlap in godliness, of course, but everybody wants to admit the fact that there is masculine and feminine godliness. So, just by the virtue of that this, that, that this passage says, Therefore, I want the men. Um, It's calling us to repent of our egalitarianism, right? Our gender-neutral approach to everything. Our misunderstood and misapplied um, understanding of of male and female. God has commands for men and distinct commands for women. So in verse 8, the men in every place, it says which I take to mean wherever people may be gathered to pray. Or like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:16, it establishes that there is no other practice among the people of God. This is what is done in every place, right? We are commanded to pray. So, so what is prayer? Quick answer from the shorter catechism, concise definition. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. Isn't that a great way that's put? Now, we want to make sure our desires are godly, but it's an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will. That's the godly part of of godly desires. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Uh, To put it in the vernacular, prayer is expressing our desires, failures, and thanksgivings to God. Our desires, our petitions, our our failures, our sins, our confessions, and giving thanks to Him. That, of course, is to be done in corporate worship. It's to be done in our homes when walking along the road, as Paul puts it elsewhere, without ceasing all the time. We're to be praying. Then Paul addresses the manner in which men are to pray. They are to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now let's take the first thing first. Men are commanded to pray by lifting up their hands. Some take holy hands and spiritualize it. In other words, it has nothing to do with hands, per se, um, but only having a heart that is in the right place as you pray. They place the emphasis on holy and forget about the hands. And of course, to spiritualize is the temptation of... of, um, Many reformed intellectuals, right? Um, we like to think of ourselves as disembodied brains, but the testimony of reformed men before our time makes it clear that they took Paul's command here to not, to not only involve our holiness in approaching God, but also they took it as our physical bodies. Wow, complicated, isn't it? It says hands, it means hands. Phew. Like the ones attached to our arms. Um, I'll come to those testimonies in a minute from history, but does Scripture commend certain postures in prayer? It's a no-brainer, right? I mean, duh, of course. We're told to stand, right? Mark eleven twenty-five. whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. We're told to lift up our hands, Exodus 9, 29. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no hail no longer, that you may know that the truth is the Lord's. Psalm 63, 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips right the hands joining the lips in praising Luke 24:50 and he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them we're also commanded to bow or to kneel right 2nd chronicles 29:30 moreover king hezekiah and the officials ordered the levites to sing praises to the lord with the words of david and asaph the seer so they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshiped Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every Father in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the Spirit and in the inner man. For this reason Paul bows his knees. Right? Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. We're also called to lift up our eyes. Psalm 121.1, 1, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 123, verse one. to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. We're also told to put our face to the ground. Nehemiah 8.6, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So, we see the people of God praying in all of these postures and we're commanded to show reverence to God through our posture by the command of Scripture. Um, And our passage makes the command of men lifting holy hands explicit, this one that we're looking at in 1 Timothy 2. It's interesting to note that nowhere does Scripture give an example or a command of closing eyes in prayer. This is not to be found. You know, we do it, there are reasons why we do it, right? It's helpful to keep us from avoiding distractions and um, to be focused. And, uh, but it's a universal practice today, it seems, and yet we don't have any clear command. I mean, much rather should we be raising our hands than closing our eyes. Right? We, just, we, we, don't, we don't receive that. Um, I understand why you do it and why you will continue to do it. It'll be the same reason I do it, It's to focus yourself. But again, it's not commanded. And so um, you're free to do what you want. Men, we are commanded to lift our hands in prayer. Of all places it should be done is during the corporate worship of God. Um, But there is no such restriction here. Um, We should be hand lifters in prayer. Um, Now I've made... Uh, this point uh, elsewhere, I make this point often, but I'll make it again. Music, music, hymns, psalms, um, the things we sing in worship are beautified prayers. We're praying when we sing. It is just, uh, it's gilding the lily of a prayer, right, to add music to it. Um, it's not in a separate category, right? It is often put... put um, I've often pushed us to raise our hands in, in song, but it really is, the command here is for prayer. And so my argument is, well, that's a prayer. We're, we're crying out to God. We're, we're praising him. We're praying to him. We're asking for things, even in our songs. But, um, and so that's my argument. Now, it's, this is commanded for men, and it's explicitly um, for men, which makes it optional for women, right? Women are commanded other things in this passage, right? Um, but men get this specific exhortation, right? It's, um, it's ironic to me that many who hold to the regulative principle refuse to obey this command, right? We, we get really tight about the regular principle of worship there's so much of that that's just dictated by tradition and one of the traditions of the reformed and presbyterian is do not ever worship with your bodies it's your brains alone there's no command in scripture that you should only engage your brain in worship it actually says engage your body in your brain and your heart and your mind and your soul Right, and so the body must be engaged. And so when we when we kneel for our prayer of confession, I've had obnoxious Reformed Presbyterians tell me that it smacks of Roman Catholicism. No, it smacks of Scripture. It smacks of humility. It smacks of Scripture. Right, the command to kneel, to bow before the Lord, and then to raise hands. Um, you know, I've heard people argue against that too. And usually that's just a reactionary argument because if you go to the megachurch down the road, they lift their hands in worship, which means we can't ever lift our hands in worship because they do down at whatever church up the road. I won't name names today, right? But the, the wrong use of something does not negate its proper use. Now, lest you begin, because of your fearfulness of raising hands and worship men, to spiritualize this passage away, pay attention to what Calvin says on this. He says that, yes, holiness is important in of first place. Prayers are hindered by the unholiness of life. But he doesn't dismiss posture as of second importance. Here, here are some quotes from Calvin's works. Why do I quote Calvin? Right, because Calvin... Because most press the point that he was the cause of the rigidity in our Presbyterian worship, right? He limited worship to the Psalms, no harmony, no instruments, right? Um, But what we find when we read him, especially when it comes to the use of the body in worship, is different from what we expect. Here's some things he says. Here's what Calvin says. The inward attitude certainly holds first place in prayer, right? The attitude of the heart. But outward signs, kneeling, uncovering the head, lifting the hands, have a twofold use. The first is that we may employ all our members, all the parts of our body, for the glory and worship of God. We might deploy all the parts of our body to the worship of God, for the glory of God. Secondly, that we are, so to speak, jolted out of our laziness by this help. There is also a third use, he says, in Solomon public prayer because in this way the sons of God profess their piety and they inflame each other with reverence of God. But just as the lifting of the hands is a symbol of confidence and longing, so in order to show our humility we fall down on our knees. So there he's making that last argument is it pushes us. It pushes our hearts and our minds to be in the right place. When our bodies are humbled, when we have to kneel and it feels awkward, when we have to raise our hands and someone might see us do it. He goes on um, elsewhere in the Institutes, he says, As for bodily gestures customarily observed in praying, such as kneeling and uncovering the head, they are exercises whereby we try to rise to a greater reverence for God. In the Institute's in a different chapter. He says, let us take, for example, kneeling when solemn prayers are being said. The question is whether it is a human tradition, which any man may lawfully repudiate or neglect. I say that it is human as it is also divine. <laughs> I love how he does that. Uh, it is of God insofar as it is part of the decorum whose care and observance the apostle has commended to us but it is of men insofar as it specifically designates what had in general been suggested rather than explicitly stated. And then he goes on in that same passage and says, nothing prohibits a man who cannot bend his knees because of disease from standing to pray. Nothing forbids, except for the man who's diseased in the knees, nothing forbids you from standing to pray or to changing your posture, posture to pray. On on, um, his commentary on this verse, here's what he says, lifting up pure hands on that. As if he had said, provided that it be accompanied by a good conscience, there will be nothing to prevent all the nations from calling upon God everywhere. But he has employed the sign instead for the reality, for pure hands are the expressions of a pure heart. Just as on the contrary, Isaiah rebukes the Jews for lifting up bloody hands when he attacks their cruelty, Besides, this attitude has been generally used in worship during all ages, for it is a feeling which nature has implanted in us when we ask God to look upwards. And as, see, there he's commending looking upwards for pray, prayer. We bow our heads and close our eyes. He says, no, look upwards. I think we, that would have been far more common. Anyway, when we ask God to look upwards, and has always been so strong that even idolaters themselves, although in other respects they make a God of images of wood and stone, still retained the custom of lifting up their hands to heaven. Let us therefore learn that the attitude is in accordance with true godliness, provided that it be attended by the corresponding truth which is represented by it, namely, that God, that having been informed, That we ought to seek God in heaven, first, we should form no conception of Him that is earthly or carnal. And secondly, that we should lay aside carnal affections so that nothing may prevent our hearts from rising above the world. Right? So there he's vamping on this that has to be holy hands, right? We don't just lift our hands and that's it. That would make us sacramentalists, right? There has to be faith implanted in the heart. We don't just do an action because. Um, because we think that it's somehow meritorious, right? We combine those actions with faith, but we don't just knock out the actions and make it all faith. Posture, Calvin says, weans us from carnal affections. I mean, I mean that's, a, um, that's a fancy way of saying posture helps us get our minds on things above and not the things of the earth. Posture makes us get our minds in the right place and stop thinking about the pot roast that's cooking in the crock pot, right? Um, posture is an attempt to use the body to raise to, greater, to rise to greater reverence for God. As I tell others, I discipline myself by raising my hands in worship. That's why I do it. I push myself to reverence God in worship, and that is why I raise my hands. If I'm not feeling reverent, that's the time to raise my hand, right? To push, to use this means of my body to push my heart and to push my soul, right? Um, it's an attempt to inflame reverence. Another Calvin quote, sorry, and it's somewhat lengthy, but it comes from his sermon on this verse, and this is his main point. This is the summary of his point. Raising our hands disciplines our affections that are fixed on this earth rather than on God. It disciplines our affections. Here's what he says. And here we must also conclude that St. Paul, speaking of lifting up the hands, regards the manner that was used at all times when men prayed to God. Namely, that they joined their hands together and lifted them up. Now he says they joined their hands together and lifted them up, which is even a step beyond our comfort zone, right? Of itself, this imports nothing, but is an exercise very good and proper if it be brought um, to this right end. I say it imports nothing of itself when we lift our hands, but the end is good and profitable, yes, and necessary. And why so? We see how rude we are. We imagine always that we are too far from God and that he is not near to hear us. When we have this outward sign, it conforms to us, it confirms to us that God is near to us when we seek him. And on the other side, we also see our slothfulness. We are so slack that we have need to be stirred up to prayer And such a manner of raising our hands serves us very well to that purpose. It is a very fit means to stir us up to seek God when we lift our hands in this way on high. And again, we have need therewithal to pray to God, not as though he were an idol and required to be served in such a fleshly manner, but we must be lifted up above our senses, yes, must spoil ourselves of all earthly affections and of all things that keep us under and hold us down here on earth. Now I'm gonna stop there, right? Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying just what I said about disciplining myself right? We're so tied up in our own pride. We're so tied up in what other people would think about us. We're so tied up in our vanity that that we discipline ourselves by raising our hands in worship so that we can put down that pride and we can say, no pride, you're not going to keep my hands down because God has given me a command to do this in prayer. But so many Reformed Presbyterians think it's more of a sin to raise your hands than to be proud. It's more of a sin to, to raise your hands or to kneel in a prayer of confession than it is to be vain or to be lukewarm in worship. We've made a principle of being lukewarm in our worship, right? The frozen chosen, right? Hold in our worship, unable to utter any amens to encourage the preacher. Right? Unable to move the body, awkward every time we have to do it. Right? And so he's he's telling us: look, the body is an instrument by which we can discipline ourselves, and the posture is an instrument by which we can discipline ourselves, so that our affections might fully be set upon him. And so, raising the hands has the function of provoking the heart to the very holiness that is commended in making our prayers holy to God. Um, Finally, notice that the Apostle Paul says, pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Our prayer, and, and maybe that's why they joined hands when they lifted their hands in the ancient church, if Calvin's right. Right? It was to put away that wrath and dissension that you felt between you and your neighbor. And to be reminded that, man, to, for us to be angry at each other in the presence of God is so wrong. It's so wrong. Why would God not just consume us at this point? And so there was the joining of the hands and the raising of those hands. Our prayers, even our prayers can be angry, can't they? We can we can we can be insulting people even as we pray. We can be um, throwing bombs at others even as we pray. Our prayers should be free of anger toward our brothers, and so don't use prayer as warfare. Um, you're praying to God. You're praying before God. Your audience is God Himself. It is it is not necessarily right those that are seated around you. Our prayers should be without dissension, more literally, without reasonings or doubts or speculations. Prayers are to be faithful and according to the will of God, not according to our rambling feelings. Um, in other words, we must be taught to pray by the word of God. Prayer is not to be an undisciplined um, barfing of godless emotions before the Lord, right? Right? Um, Now, you can pour yourself out in prayer, right? Read the Psalms. I mean, David is is just, you can tell he's in anguish and he's just dying. And he's he's, um, aggressive with God at points in his prayers. You know, even to go to the Lord and say, how long, O Lord? is taking your cares to him in, a, in a, an intense way, right? But it, it's not just this ramble of you know, half-thought-out emotions, half-thoughts, distracted thoughts, and just a rambling nothing before the Lord. That's irreverent prayer too. Um, finally, we, we're, we're a composite of body and soul, right? We're a composite of body and soul. No one would re- read the scriptures and come to the conclusion that the body is superfluous. And that That's what the Gnostics tended toward, right? They thought that all that mattered was the soul and that the body was just a shell for the soul. And that's what Presbyterian worship is today. It's like we come into this thing and, and um, if we could connect with just our brains through the matrix, we would think it would be perfectly okay leave our bodies at the door, just hook up our brains, and get the download. But if you, and and that's Gnostic, right? That's, That's the Gnostic idea. It doesn't matter really what you did with your body at all, because it was the soul that was only important. Of course, on the other hand, we can emphasize the outward to the exclusion of faith and the and the inward, and that's to become sacramentalists, right? That's what sacramentalists tend toward. They mistake the sign with the thing, the thing signified, as the Westminster Confession puts it. And so um, they, they think the actions, the doing of the actions, is what makes them holy, right? That the baptism regenerates, that the taking of the Lord's table infuses um, it, it, that grace. And so there must be a right order to these things. Um, don't tend in either direction. Don't be a Gnostic and don't be a sacramentalist. Right? The sacramentalists only care about the body, the Gnostics only care about the soul. You're a composite of body and soul, the inward and the outward, in proper balance. Allow the body to discipline the heart, right? And to push you toward reverence to God. And so, men, consider this command of Scripture. God. Would have you lift your hands in prayer? And now you're thinking that one of the reasons you won't do that is because your arms get tired when you lift them in the air. I mean, that's what we're all kind of thinking right now. My arms are going to get tired. I can't do that. I need a, I'm like Moses and I need her and, uh, what, Aaron? Yeah, holding up my arms. Well, you may, at points, but um, let's uh, let's build up some prayer muscles, right? Um, this pertains to both um, prosaic prayers and musical prayers, right? I'm convinced of this more than ever when we publicly pray together. Um, we're lazy. Um, We're uninspired and we don't understand how the body can be a tool in the worship of God. Scripture commands it here for the men. And there's always simple blessing in obeying the commands of Scripture. The simple commands of Scripture. Obey them, right? Give yourselves to the ones that you can obey and then get to work on the ones that require you to Uh, require of you much, right? Lifting your hands in prayer. We can all do it.